um, is taken from 2 Kings chapter 1, uh, the first uh, 18 verses. Uh, we've skipped a few episodes in the uh, life and ministry and exploits of uh, Elijah to come to this particular passage. This is the last public action of Elijah before his next uh, episode in his life, which is his exodus from this world, a rapture before the rapture, <laughs> a, uh, a chariot of fire that takes him uh, into heaven. So we'll be looking at that uh, next Sunday, but today we're looking at this particular passage in Second uh, Kings chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Now, after the death of Ahab, Moab, a nation... Moab rebelled against Israel. Now, Ahaziah, he's the succeeding king. Now, Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Baal-zebub. Baal-zebub. Get it? You've heard that in the New Testament. Baal-zebub. The god of Ekron. Whether I shall recover from this sickness... But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. Now, verse 5, there's a lot of stuff that happens in between that the narrator says, hey, readers, you're smart enough to realize what's happened, so we don't have to rehearse all of these details. So in verse 5, the messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, why have you returned? And they said to him, there came a man to meet us and said to us, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord. Is it because there's no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you've gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he, the king, said, it is Elijah, the Tishbite. Verse 9. Then the king sent to him, Elijah, a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of the hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I am a man of God... Let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. The fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent to him another captain of fifty men with his fifty. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered him, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties. Now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, Thus says the Lord, 
Because you've sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there's no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died, according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Same name, actually cousins. Because Azahiah had no son. Now, the rest of now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Let's pray. Father, give us, uh, we would pray, such a measure of your spirit now that we can be enlightened to the truth of your word, that we can reverence your word, respect your word, believe your word, obey your word, and repent of everything in us that you would oppose and have before you our hearts and everything that you've worked in our hearts that you would continue to sanctify and make right in your sight so that we can, as believers, walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin with Second Chronicles 9, 19, 1-3. And I want this slide to be up here before you. You can look past me and I'll read this. Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. Now, this story follows the fact that Jehoshaphat had gone to war with King Ahab on behalf of King Ahab against their enemies. That's the context. But Jehu, the son of Hanani, Hanani the seer went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, wrath has gone out against you from the Lord. Nevertheless, some good is found in you, for you destroyed the Ashereth out of the land and have set your heart to seek God. Now, Overall, Jehoshaphat was a good king. He was one of the few good kings that we find in the history of Judah. No good kings in Israel. He was a good king. He was a believer. He had set his heart to seek God. He opposed and removed aspects of paganism that existed in Judah. Yet, this God-fearing king had his judgment clouded politically and morally and spiritually. Most significantly, spiritually. And he formed an alliance with a wicked king, the wicked king Ahab, the most wicked of all the kings of Israel. He set himself in a supportive role for this pagan, anti-God king. The king who fostered the spiritual ruin of the nation of Israel, the sister nation to Judah. Jehoshaphat did what Paul warns about in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Paul there says, and this is often applied to marriage, but it has a far wider range than marriage. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? And if you read that section and examine that passage, it has everything to do with pagan idolatry. Now, King Jehoshaphat did this very thing that the New Testament says, don't ever do this. He yoked himself to the pagan, unbelieving King Ahab, uh, even had their families, their children intermarrying. So God says, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? It's a rhetorical question. And it's asked in such a way that the answer is emphatically, no, never, don't ever do this. And to make the point clear, God sends a disciplinary form of wrath against King Jehoshaphat. How is this relevant today? Just this week, uh, Julie, on her Facebook, 
where she has a Facebook connection to one of her classmates, they graduated together from high school, who became a Christian minister. So this is, you know, 30-some years ago. Here is what his post looked like, sounded like, read like, when it appeared this week. Rainbow colors, purple down to blue to light blue to green to yellow to orange to red. This is what it said. I will officiate same-sex weddings. I will officiate interracial weddings. No problem with that. I will officiate non-binary weddings. I don't have a clue as to what a non-binary wedding is. <laughs> I will officiate interfaith weddings, which means a Christian, an atheist, a Christian, and a Muslim, a Christian, and a Hindu, a Christian, and a Buddhist. I will officiate the weddings of any adults who wish to profess lifetime devotion to one another because we need more love in this world. More than Julie could handle. I cautioned her. She said, all I'm going to do is post in response James 3.1, which says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Took a few hours for his response to show up. This is what he said. I'm summarizing, but this is what he said. I will gladly stand before God with this position. Because God is always a God of love and God always supports love. Another example. One of my former students graduate of Bakersfield Christian High School, who happens to be a member of one of our Bakersfield Reformation churches, he and his wife, posted this past week on Facebook with concern about the country's celebration of Pride Month as a celebration of lifestyles that God actually condemns. So he just posted this. It, it wasn't vitriolic. It wasn't angry. It was a statement of fact. So one of his other former Bakersfield Christian High School teachers responds this way. And it was written as a retort. Obviously, you have never loved a gay person. Then this observation that Jules and I have both seen with respect to social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, from Christians. We've seen this message several times. Quote, Let's give a shout-out to all of our LGBTQ plus brothers and sisters in Christ. We love you and support you. Now, with this kind of behavior, these kinds of things happening this month, pastor, author, theologian, PCA, Dr. Kevin DeYoung posted these words in his blog. Pride Month turns a moral argument about which the Bible has clear and unequivocal answers into a quest for personal self-acceptance, which is why many soft-hearted and muddle-headed Christians line up for the parade just like everyone else. Or there are many Christians out there who are just like Jehoshaphat, to which the question must be asked, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Now, it, it appears to what Kevin DeYoung says in his blog, it appears to anyone who's seen all of this and who actually knows some of the people who are posting these kinds of things, that such believers are very much in the dark about how God actually views these current matters within our culture because they're lining up, as Kevin DeYoung says, and joining the parade, supporting the parade just like everyone else. Brothers and sisters, 
when did the latest cultural trend ever accurately reflect the truth of God's word? When? I just turned 70, folks. I know I don't look it, but I just turned 70, and I can tell you, as an adult for the last 50 years, I have watched the culture time and time again. I have never seen anything coming out of the culture that would influence the culture pervasively that ever represented or reflected biblical truth in my lifetime. If I'm wrong, please correct me. Please show me even one thing that has dominated our culture that has reflected biblical truth. I don't understand. But King Jehoshaphat, a good man, was blinded politically, culturally, morally, spiritually. And so God said to him, Why do you hate the things that God loves. And why do you love the things that God hates? Okay. Now, all of these things that have happened during this past week that I've been looking at very much confirm the relevance of this series that we've been looking at upon the life of Elijah and paganism within northern Israel during the 8th century B.C. We've stated as an overarching theme for this series that paganism itself has overtaken and eclipsed the influence of biblical truth in Western culture, and particularly in the United States, and even has infiltrated and eclipsed biblical truth in many segments of what is called the Christian church. But further, we've also said this, and need to emphasize this so strongly, this movement of paganism is relentless. Jezebel's program in Israel was the complete annihilation of the worship of the true God of Israel. The relentlessness of the paganism within our culture and its infiltration into the church is to the eclipse of the worship and honor and glory of Christ to the exaltation of self. This is happening. This is what's going on. That's the agenda. Yet, it doesn't change our mission as true Christians, as true believers. Our mission always remains the same. That we've got to be faithful to who we are, faithful to what we are called to, faithful to the truth of the gospel, because apart from that gospel, no one can be saved. No one will be saved. Apart from that gospel, the entire world is under the judgment of God. And to remember, God is not soft in his opposition to evil, and particularly the evils of paganism. So coming to the story, we have skipped over a few episodes in the life of Elijah to arrive at the last chapter of Elijah's public ministry. Once again, this story, like all the stories about Elijah, has its true focus upon God and what God does. What God does with us, what God does for us, what God does to us, what God does in us, in order that we would believe in faith that God is exactly who he says he is. But furthermore, with respect to this story, God does with people who willfully refuse to believe and trust him, judgment. God stands firm against all who reject him and his word. So the story is a story of judgment. This passage is a passage about what God opposes. And I want to approach this passage from two perspectives. Uh, first of all, for us to um, rehearse the narrative. Uh, the narrative that we have here in these 18 verses is like a, a, a three-act play. There's act number one that has essentially one scene, though it has two sub-scenes, perhaps, because it shifts focus. Uh, act chapter two 
has three specific scenes. We'll look at each one of those. In Act chapter 3 is the finale, the climax of it, and has one brief scene, one voice speaking only. And then I want to move into the theological lessons that we derive out of this passage. And those theological truths are the three things that you see outlined in the bulletin for you. Um, Three things that, first of all, begins with understanding God's opposition. It stands against all of those who will not depend upon him. Uh, And then secondly, God's opposition stands against the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then thirdly, God's opposition always inevitably becomes judgment on those who will not repent. So, we begin with this first part, this first approach, uh, looking at the narrative of what we have here in these 18 verses, a narrative that has three particular acts, three particular uh, ways in which the plot develops. And the first is this, uh, the setting of the stage, verses 1 through 8. And if you notice the very beginning of the text, the story begins with good news, and then bad news, and then further, a royal calamity. What is the good news? Ahab's dead. (laughs) Uh, You may say, that's harsh. Uh, No. Uh, When an evil king dies, and we come to his funeral, there's no eulogy. There was a rehearsal of the evil that he's done. Uh, Remember in Mark Anthony's speech about the death of Julius Caesar in Shakespeare, where he says, The evil that men do live after them. The good is oft interred in their bones, so let it be with Caesar. You can't say that about Ahab. Uh, The evil that he did lives after him. There was no good that was buried with Ahab. His whole life demonstrates and reveals that to be the case. God says, this is the worst king that Israel ever had, the worst king that Israel will ever have. He's dead. It's good news. Now, the immediately bad news is this. (laughs) We have a change of, of kingships. So what happens to Moab, a tributary country? David had conquered David had created this relationship, and it had continued when Jehoram had broken away from Rehoboam's kingdom. Moab still was a subject kingdom to the northern kingdom of Israel. Ah, they break away. They see their opportunity. Regime change. Administrations change. Enemies see their opportunities. And then we have a royal calamity. By the way, King Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, only reigns for two years. It's a very short reign. And actually what we have here in this chapter, in the book of Kings, is uh, not a eulogy. It is a description of why this son of Ahab actually has such a very short life and a very short reign. The royal calamity is this. Um... He has a household accident. Now, you sort of have to understand these ancient houses that had more than one floor. Well, how do you have light into these other kinds of floors? Well, you often had an open space in the middle of the room that would have a lattice that would allow sunlight to come all the way in and through this. And you normally had some parapet around it, some fence around it to keep everything safe and so forth. But we're not told this, but you can just imagine this king whose uh, lifestyle habits may not have been normal, good, healthy, CrossFit kinds of things, uh, imbibing a little too much and walking close to the lattice and stumbling and falling and crashing all the way through. Now, the word sick in the text, if you look it up in the Hebrew, it, it covers not only physical illness but physical injury. So he didn't get sick like with a microbe, like COVID or something like that. He got injured deeply. But he's clearly understanding that his injury is so great that he might die. Now, often when people think death is coming, they will begin to think about eternity. They'll begin to think about the things of life. They will begin to review life. 
We have no evidence that this is what was going on with the son of Ahab. Uh, everything about this indicates that his great concern here is to know, is he going to live, is he going to die? And so he sends messengers to go all the way, 45 miles away, to the city of Ekron to inquire of Beelzebub there. Now you ask, well, why? I mean, this country was committed to Baal worship. Well, what's sort of implicit in the story is the penumbra, the atmosphere, the essence of some sort of Elijah's influence. The country never turns back to God like it should, but there are 7,000 who not bow, bow the knee to Baal. But Elijah, you know, doesn't get killed by Jezebel even after the death threat. Elijah continues to have some ministry with respect to Ahab's life. In fact, at one point, Ahab actually repents of something and God withholds judgment. But it's also Ahab who declares to, I mean, uh, Elijah who declares to Ahab, look, you know, you're going to die. And the dogs are going to lick up your blood. And he's going to prophesy, and Jezebel's going to die. And the dogs are going to lick up her blood. Right? Okay. So, so, he's, so Ahaziah knows all of these things, but he, for some reason, doesn't think that he would get a good word from Elijah. And he doesn't really have confidence that the local Baal has any power because the local Baal has failed them again and again and again, so he sends to Ekron. Maybe 45 miles away is outside of the influence of, of Elijah and Elijah's God and powers and whatever. But the angel of the Lord comes to Elijah, intercepts the messengers, sends them back. Uh, this man told us to tell you these things. Uh, basically... This man told us to tell you that you're going to die. Well, he's afraid he's going to die. Now he's heard it from this messenger. What does this guy look like? They describe him. He knows it's Elijah the Tishbite. So that sets, that's a stage for what happens next. We move into Act 2. And Act 2 has three specific scenes to it. Scene 1, verses 9 and 10. It takes a little more explanation to, to really understand what's going on. We need to look at the king's reaction to Elijah's message because everything that happens in, in this scene and in the next scene and then third scene, everything that, that happens is a reaction of the king to Elijah. And the message. So he sends a captain with 50 soldiers to apprehend Elijah. Why such a large force to take one man? Well, clearly the, the king has some concern because of Elijah's reputation. A reputation that Ahaziah knows full well because he grew up knowing about these things. He knows that during the time of his father's reign, this man called for a drought for three years. It hurt the country very, very deeply. And then they went to Mount Carmel with this great contest with all the Baal prophets, and Elijah slaughtered them. God, uh, fire came down from heaven at the word of Elijah. The drought stopped at the word of Elijah. Rain came at the word of Elijah. Elijah outran a chariot all the way 20-some miles to Jezreel. All of these things. And my mom threatened to kill him but she never really pulled that off. And he said specifically how my father was going to die and what would happen afterwards. And he did. He's threatened my mom with a similar kind of fate. She's not dead yet. But it sure makes me wonder about this guy. So I need to see him in my place, at my bedside. I need... Actually, what I is not to see him, but to take him and probably kill him. All this stuff is probably going on in Ahaziah's mind. So he sends 50 men under a captain to take him. You see, and knowing all of this stuff about Elijah, Elijah is still a pagan. And so he thinks like a pagan. 
Pagans do not believe in one ultimate true God who governs everything, but they believe in nature as God. They believe in the forces of nature as particular gods. And they don't understand because their minds are blinded by the God of this world. They don't comprehend that Elijah has no power. Everything that Elijah has done has been God working through Elijah. Pagans believe that there are miracle workers. Pagans believe that there are people who draw upon the power of the divine essence of the world and they themselves can become the channels and vehicles of actually exercising that power. Kill the man, you kill the power. That's what pagans believe. That's what King Ahaziah believes. So the captain comes. He finds Elijah waiting for all of them up on top of a hilltop. And think about this brief exchange that takes place. The captain calls Elijah man of God. Yet, he says to the man of God... The king says, come down, which means surrender. Now, there's something going on here that we have to connect to, again, the way paganism operates, the way paganism thinks. High places, high hill, hilltops were places of power. That's why all of the false worship in Israel was done up on the high places. That's why uh, God commanded his prophets again and again to pull down the high places, to take down the high places, to destroy the altars on the high places because they were symbolic of the power of the pagan gods. So where do you think Elijah's sitting? On a hilltop. They want him to come down. Because they think if he comes down, it, he's going to have to put some of his power aside in some fashion, so he's going to surrender all this advantage that he has. Now, of course, rationally, none of this makes sense. Because unless the king and the captain have some kind of idea like this, come down or we will sit here and wait until you starve to death or get so thirsty that you have to come down because we're ready to wait. Elijah's response cuts through all of this pagan nonsense. He says, if I am a man of God, now what he means by God is different than what the captain meant by the word God. What Elijah means by God is the true God, the creator, Yahweh, God who sent fire on Mount Carmel to take up the sacrifice. If I am a man of God, well, what actually follows if Elijah is a man of God? What actually is going to follow if he is a man of the true God? If I am a man of God who has the true God for my God, if I serve the living and true God... Do you remember what happened a few years ago when I proclaimed that I serve the living and the true God? Well, I need to prove this to you once again that all of this is true. Let fire come down from heaven. It's Mount Carmel all over again. The true God, the real God, answers with fire, and the 51 men are consumed. So, you and I are believers. We are free from, hopefully, pagan notions about God and justice and judgment and heaven and hell. So without any hesitation, the question is this. Did Elijah kill these men? No. Elijah is not a magician. Elijah is not... Darth Vader, manipulating the force. Elijah is not empowered by nature in a supernatural sense to do these things. 
who killed these men? God. The God of all the earth. The God of all creation. The God who says is appointed to every man once to die and then comes the judgment. It's the God who opposes what is evil. What is sad, as our Professor Davis, I've mentioned before, as our Professor Davis has written his commentary on these things, what is sad is that many scholars apologize for Elijah at this point and basically say God indulged Elijah because this is not really God's way of doing things. Christian scholars with PhDs coming out of seminary training saying these things to the Christian world today. You need to be so aware of this. You need to be so aware that pagan ideas are eclipsing biblical truth in some of the greatest evangelical seminaries in this country. As an aside, look at your English Standard Version translators, publishers, title for this section. Please look at it. Someone read that out loud to me. What does it say? What does it say? What's the introduction in bold? Not in the original. It's what the uh, publishers have put there to identify this section. What does it say? Someone has an ESV? Come and say it. What does it say? It's going to say that Elijah denounces Ahaziah. Do you see it? Now, let me just tell you something. If you think this is Elijah... You have sold your scholarship and academics to the wrong direction. This was not Elijah. This is not a story about Elijah. It is a story about God and what God does. And we have to keep that before us constantly. So we come to scene two. We can be a little bit briefer here because we've set the stage for much of what's going on here. And this is verses 11 and 12. Now, the narrator spell, spares us the details of how the king came to know all of this that had happened. But surely none of this happened in a closet. None of it happened in a corner. There were people who were watching this. There were probably, uh, you know, the paparazzi who were traveling along with this army to see what's going on here. Let's, let's watch what happens. So the report gets back to the king. The king then does the same thing. Now, you and I know what the definition of insanity is, but this is only the second time. Double-checking to make sure that maybe the first time was an anomaly. So it's another captain, another 50 soldiers. Now, it looks like this captain repeats the same approach. But, in fact, there's a greater emphasis upon the authority of the king. He says, this is the king's order which is more than what the first captain said. And then he says, come down quickly. So in other words, the whole characterization of this passage involves Ahaziah putting a greater deal of emphasis to his captain, to the soldiers, get this job done, I'm not accepting failure. That kind of a thing. The king expects to be obeyed. There's almost, you can read into it, a certain amount of fury and anger on the part of King Ahaziah. He's the boss. He doesn't want to be refused. Verse 12. Elijah has no need to change his answer. But think of it this way. If I am a man of God, then the king, your king, issuing these orders is not the boss. And Elijah is saying, and no one tells my boss what to do. So he repeats what was said before. 
and God sends fire down from heaven. And these 51 men are consumed because you can't boss God around. Third scene, verses 11 to 15. Here we have anything but a repeat. Now, we've got to believe and guess that the king issued the same exact orders. Because the, the attitude of the captain will not be reflected when Elijah actually appears before King Ahaziah. So there is a disconnect, and an important disconnect, between the orders given to this captain and the captain's actual approach to Elijah. He has proper fear. Every one of us as Christians need to understand what proper fear is before the living and true God. He has learned from the unfortunate demise of his predecessors exactly what the story is all about. So he approaches Elijah with this deepest amount of deference He begs for his life. He begs for the life of his men. He pleads on the basis of knowing that his life and the life of his soldiers are in danger, deep danger. He knows that he and the cohort of men with him have no real power in this situation. He knows that he and his men are defeated right from the beginning. So he ignores the king's commands. He humbly begs for his life and for the life of his men. And verse 15 tells us the angel of the Lord speaks to Elijah and says, Go, no fear, you're not going to be harmed. Go with this man. Now, that concludes Act 2. We come then to the third act of the narrative, the final act. It's the finale. It's the conclusion, verses 16, 17, and 18. And in this final act of the narrative, there is one voice, one speaker, one living God speaking through Elijah. We hear nothing about Ahaziah's voice at all. There are no other people involved in what's going to take place. It's God's voice alone speaking through Elijah. And that's to remind all of the readers, those who are the faithful to God's people, in every affair of life, God has the final word. So God announces the same judgment that Elijah had already spoken through the king's messengers in scene one. The king will most certainly die. And without any fanfare, our narrator says, and the king dies. Now, the next way of looking at this, the theological truths, because of this background, much faster, much simpler, and I hope very, very clear. So look at the first truth that we find here, revealed out of verses 1 through 8. God opposes those who will not depend on him. Now, there's several ways of looking at what's going on in these verses, uh, but it all revolves around the idea that God rejects, God hates, God detests paganism and pagan idolatry and every kind of prop in our lives in which we are not depending upon God. God has no pity, especially for those who willfully depend on that which is not God, who exchange the truth of God for a lie, who worship and serve created things rather than the Creator, who love the world and the things that are in the world to the exclusion of actually loving God. Those who would exchange the truth of God for a lie. Those who would love what God is hates. And Professor Davis has titled this entire section, The God Who Detests Our Idols. 
If the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, the greatest sin is to treat God's existence as if it doesn't matter. The greatest sin is to refuse to depend upon Him for anything and everything with respect to your life. Mr. Hudson correctly reminded us as we as he introduced the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, that we will often entrust to God all sorts of kinds of things and then think there are our things that we have to work out on our own. And rightly, Mr. Hudson was exhorting us to realize that is not what God desires. If we go to anything other than Jesus for help or for meaning or for significance or even for having some kind of fun in our lives outside of Christ, when we do anything and seek anything outside of Christ, we're doing what King Ahaziah did in principle. God opposes those who will not depend upon him. Jesus said, John chapter 15, Abide in me, for apart from me you can do nothing. Second theological truth. Out of verses 9 through 15, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I mean, this is exactly illustrating what we see in James chapter 4, verse 6. It entirely illustrates what's going on in this second section. Because we have the king and the first two captains and their soldiers all demonstrating what it is like to operate out of pride, to operate out of self-conceit, to operate out of an idea that we have this great power to control and to actually control other people in this world, in this life. Filled with self-importance. It's the third captain who understands the truth. He is the one who recognizes the reality of what's going on. He understands that the one who humbles himself before God shall be regarded by the Lord with grace. There is no grace without deflating your pride. Remember the poem by Thomas Henley. It's my favorite hateful poem. It's called Invictus. You know two lines out of it in which he says, I am the captain of my fate. I am the master of my soul. There is no human sentiment more hateful to God than this kind of pride. It is the deepest rejection of who God is. But it's also the deepest recognition of who God is, to know that God gives grace to the humble. That any of us who humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God, that God will lift us up, that we will be wholly received by God, we shall have the fullness of the grace that is found in Christ. Third theological truth. The last three verses. God executes his judgment on those who will not repent. We must never forget as believers that there is life after death. There's a destiny of heaven or hell. There is only one way to be saved. It is through the blood of Christ by grace through faith. And no one is ever saved who does not repent of living apart from God. No one is ever saved who does not believe that he or she absolutely needs Christ. Two applications to conclude. First, you and I as believers, we need to keep praying that God will enable us to do good to all people, to care for all people. But to do so without the shaky compromise and witness of compromise in which we are actually endorsing what is evil. 
We can love and we can care for the broken human lives who live according to the pride agenda, but we can do so, we must do so, without in any sense, to any degree, endorsing how they live. It's no love to love the man who insists that he's sober enough to drive when you know when he steps in that car, he's a wreck waiting to happen. There is no love to encourage people who hold to the LGBTQ plus agenda when you know that the direction of their lives is condemned by God. We don't ever want God to say to us what he said to King Jehoshaphat. Why did you help the wicked and love those and help those who have hated the Lord? Do good. Love others without compromise to the truth. Secondly, we need to repent of our own habits of not depending upon Christ. We need to ask God to help us truly to live daily, all the time, in dependence upon the Lord Jesus. We need to keep before us, constantly seeking this all-important truth. It's my favorite Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Because we're not Frank Sinatra's, who, when he stood before God, didn't say, though he sang this way all through his life, I did it my way. Because we're not the poet who claims, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of our souls. Because we never want to be those whom God opposes. Rather, we want to be those who can say, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, you came to rescue us from all that a holy and righteous God opposes. You've done so by humbling us, giving us the grace to repent, and moving us to love you. All that you've done so far in our lives, Father, please do more and more and more. For you are our great shepherd. We are the sheep of your pasture. We are the flock under your care. For the sake of your son, Jesus. Amen.